Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Max Meyer. Welcome back, everybody. I've been sick the past couple of days, so I'm just kind of recovering. And, um, you know, I'm just kind of sitting back enjoying. We've had a lot of snow. It's been really cold, particularly in the Northeast, but throughout the country, it's been really cold. And I always think about winter severity and starting to record the number of days we have cold temperatures hitting a certain degree, the amount of ice, snow, all those factors impact the deer and the health of the deer. And you know, I'm mindful of that and conscious of the food that we have in the landscape. I've got Perry Batten back. We're going to talk a little bit about you know harvest strategies on their farms and how this may relate to you and some of your strategies you can think about this winter, you know, into next season, planning ahead, thinking about your deer populations and how you're going to manage deer. So I think this would be a good good talk for for us. Hey, Perry, you on the line? Yes, sir. All right, man. What's going on? Hunting season over for you almost? Uh, yeah, we killed two does last night, actually. We were uh, testing some broadheads um, for uh, for a broadhead company. But uh, other than that, yeah, we're pretty wrapped up. Um, there's about 15, 16 inches of snow here. I don't think it got above negative temperatures here today. So it's... Uh, it's time for season to be over and not spend so much time outside because of the, the harsh weather. <laughs> yeah. And you, you had a wonderful season and I, I don't want to recap it all, but you killed a, a numerous amount of big bucks. Uh, you've had a good doe killing season from what we've already talked about. You want to just, just give everyone just a quick where you ended up with the season just for you personally. Yeah. I killed four mature deer I mean, from a mature standpoint, probably it'll be hard to top. I killed one deer that was eight and a half, two deer that were seven and a half, and then a six and a half year old. So um, from just an overall standpoint of what we try to do on our farms is kill and grow mature whitetails. It was unbelievable for me. Um, I killed a dozen does, which is low for this um, this season, but we had some EHD here in the Midwest. Um, so we didn't, we didn't shoot the numbers that we would have shot because we think mother nature might be taking its toll on the herd instead of, instead of allowing us to manage it. So, um, but in years past, you know, I've killed 40, 60 a season to try and manage some numbers. Uh, that's across, let's see here. Yeah. 12, 13 different farms. So, um, we do our part to try and manage them the best we can, but mother nature took its toll this year on a few, a few HD killing. So, yeah, I think it's important to mention, and we talked about this in a prior podcast, a little bit along the lines of <laughs> disease and, you know, density dependent factors that impact our deer specifically, you know, just mentioning, you know, the disease, obviously disease is a de- density dependent factor that we have to be concerned with, you know, other things like predation, yeah, and, and really, you know, competition for resources, that's a big thing for deer this time of year. You know, manage your deer populations within carrying capacity is really kind of the most critical thing that we try to focus in on. And with my clients, what I try to stick with is 
how much is your land providing the deer and what are your deer populations like? And there's a lot of ways to assess deer populations. I think one of the questions for you specifically is when you're looking at your landscape and you, you just talked about, you know, harvest and management goals, you know, what do you try to do like from an overall approach standpoint to make sure you're not, you know, exceeding that carrying capacity or increasing the numbers too high where you're not getting the benefit, right? Your, your focus, there's a trophy management piece of this in the equation here. So you're trying to bring apart the, the bigger, more lively quality bucks. And in doing so, you've got to be conscious of kind of these, these population dynamics, so to speak, that may impact, you know, your deer to be healthy and strong. So what's your take on, on that kind of at a big kind of picture kind of viewpoint? Yeah, from a big standpoint, you know, across all farms, we look at how much food we're putting on the farm for the deer, whether it be a green food source or a grain food source, how many deer, you know, we, we each year, year to year, you know, no matter whether it's a farm in Iowa or Missouri, we try to take our numbers of, you know, say Wade and I go hunt one night. Um, Every time somebody goes to that spot, we write it down on the log sheet and look at how many does, how many bucks, and how many fawns we saw. So, you know, having two years of history of that, we can kind of look at, okay, did the number of does we shot, you know, take our population to get a better, we kind of base it off a buck to doe ratio. And, and also a bigger, you know, bigger picture from what you said, are the bucks getting, do our bucks look healthy? Are they getting to potential? when they are mature, meaning are we putting enough food on the farm for them to be healthy or is the deer population too high that they're competing for resources? Therefore they're putting more energy into trying to feed and compete not only for resources, but also to breed, bringing that antler growth downward when, you know, I compare it to somebody who you know, if you're eating healthy and doing well, you're just an overall happier person. You know, the deer is the same way. Yeah, I think this whole population management thing is kind of a tricky topic because you have all these very subjectives. Like if you're in the if you're in the game of trophy managing, you're more considerate in some cases of the number of deer and the relative food. In some cases, a lot of folks are just interested in seeing a lot of deer and that's that's meaningful to them. You want to see more deer, more big bucks make it to that next age class. And there's there's a, a articulation of information that kind of comes along with that. Some things I work with my clients on is how many deer make it from one age class to the next and keeping record, you know, percentage-wise of survival. I think that's a big factor in the equation. Will this deer make it to the next age class? Obviously, there's many factors that impact deer's mortality, and, and that could be some natural factors, including, obviously, other ones like your neighbors shooting them. And, you know, you're considerate of all these things in the scheme and in the planning so really, like when it comes down to it, like is there really ideal, you know, sex ratios and densities, and what's the right fawn survival recruitment percentages that you're looking for? It's really dependent on like your objectives and goals, and also kind of what the environment's throwing at you. You mentioned earlier, and I think of Texas, I think of drought. I mean, drought is something that kills, you know, their quality of hunting out there. And I, I don't know if you've done any hunting in Texas, have you? Or I know Mark. Yeah, has. yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and that's. I'll tell you, it's not just in Texas, the drought, the drought hurts us here as well from the Midwest, you know, just looking at wet years to dry years in antler growth in bucks is huge. Um, 
also EHD and disease factors when it's a dry year and those pond banks are open with mud and the midge flies can nest and live, you know, well, the, it, it always seems to tickle us a little with EHD and drought years, you know, compared to a wet year where the rainfall covered up those mud banks. So, I mean, it's, I think drought across the United States, I don't think it's concentrated in any part. I think it affects everything, including elk herds, you know, and, I, and in your country, I'm sure buck um, antler growth is affected by drought years as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that a hundred percent. And I think a lot of pieces of this is thinking about your specific climatic conditions, right? The biggest impact for us is winter severity. That's the largest impact we're looking at yep. health, health and status of these deer in the winter months. And as a result of that, that deer is taking up space in the landscape. I look at deer as almost units, and each unit is consuming X amount of food per day. And I equate that to some calculation based upon food availability in a macro scale. So I could take a property, multiple properties, and start adding them up together and do an average food you know, per acre and then figure out you know, deer population numbers. Now, deer population numbers... There's a lot of ways to do that. And one of the things you mentioned earlier is observation. I actually find observation to be, in this case, probably one of the more valued options. The other thing I'm finding is with the advent of these you know, cheaper thermal drones that they have with high-resolution imagery, you know, people are going out there and they're taking some data. And like, well, you know, the deer on my property, there's seven today. And then you know, they don't do it again until maybe next season. And there's eight the next you know, year. You know, and it's it doesn't give a representative number. The the metrics that most people have used over the years that seem to be most advantageous is figuring out preferential food seasonally, segmenting those off, comparing you know the edibility or utilization of those, and comparatively you know this is the exclusion cage concept, right? That is helpful, and even doing exclusion cages in your woods because it gives an indication of you know what the growth potential is or the growth rate is and what the consumptive levels are. So the combination of a lot of these different factors, whether it's observation, I'll say, you know, geospatial studies, you know, uh, thermal imagery, and in this case, measuring, we talked about vegetation, those are critical components. And I think the combination of all those kind of makes sense to me, not just relying on one, but looking at them all, because I guess if you're on your property every day and you're doing analysis and you're trying to think about, you know, what this property holds, I really think that there's a combination thereof, because the consumptive rates of some of these deer are going to vary and they're going to vary based on age and you can't go with a straight number all the time. Like every deer consumes, you know, 2000 pounds of dry matter on an annual basis. That's just a figure. I mean, the number is going to vary based on size, health, status, et cetera, what's available to them on the landscape. So there's a lot of factors that kind of go into that. So I guess my next question for you, Perry, is looking at the habitat. Do you guys go next? I mean, you got the observation data and you talked about logging. That's going to equate to some shootability, you know, factor that you but what do you look at from a habitat standpoint in equation to that is there another factor in this equation for you guys i think measuring no but from a habitat standpoint on all our farms you know we're i'm going to say we're blessed here in the midwest to have you know the timbers that we have and some of the grasslands that we have in this part of the country um you know giving the deer a lot of different options whether that's acorns you know, woody brows in the timber, we, we do a lot of timber stand improvement, which creates a lot of woody brows. Um, and then we, we work very hard at 
planting soybeans, corn, you know, any green food source from clover to radishes to winter bulbs. So, you know, I think we get our best data and measuring numbers off of our logs and what we're seeing in person because we hunt every day. If it's not brutal, brutal weather and or really hot where the deer aren't going to move, we hunt every day because we have enough spots to play the wind correctly to, to be able to hunt every day. So we're, you know, we're see, we're the trail camera every day, if you will, on a different farm, a different plot, being able to measure, okay, are these deer looking healthy or are these deer looking sick? Do we have, you know, 20 times more does than we should compared to the number of bucks out here on a good night? You know, so we sit there and are able to look at our farms day to day and kind of make decisions off of our observations. Do you feel like those numbers give you, just from an observation standpoint, do you think they give you most of the solution from, from a number standpoint? Do you feel like you're seeing 80% of the deer that are on your particular areas and just kind of guesstimating the ones that you're missing? Do you ever look at it that way? I, I believe we do. Yeah, I mean, especially deep dive into those numbers, fawn recruitment, I think we see it very, very well. You know, and and we're not – I'm not going to say we're not concentrated on the deer we're not seeing, or that might be on the neighbors. Cause it's always, you know, you never know when you're going to get a deer to travel over to you, but you know, we try to hone in and keep our uh, resident deer, if you will, that stay on us and live on us as healthy as possible, because those are the deer we care about the most, you know, the ones that live and reside on our farms, granted they travel miles and many of them, leave and come as they please, you know, um, just like any wild deer does everywhere. But we, I think, yes, to answer that question, we see the numbers we need to see and to evaluate those from a day-to-day basis on the logs and also, you know, sitting there hunting. So let's get into the numbers really quick. So let's say your deer per square mile is, I don't know, we'll say it's a hundred just, just for rough numbers. And in that equation, I think, and it may be higher and a little lower than that. I'm, I'm assuming it's a little a little higher in some of the farms. But when you're starting to look at your numbers and your survival, do you guys start to calculate your three, four, five, six-year-old bucks, like just numbers-wise, and, and look at the percent that actually make it to the next age class? Do you have, like, guesstimates? Do you lose 20% or 30% through those intervals of age class germination? I, I think at 20 to 30% is probably normal yes um i think this year which we had some ehd hit us we've lost i'm gonna say 60 percent um and and that's across deer population in general it's it's numbers across many counties up here that are low and depleted and people that we talk to every day and hunt that people that also hunt a lot are seeing you know, small, small numbers on late season food sources, which is normally where we get our best counts and overall herd health analysis, you know, is those late season food sources where we might see 40, 50, 60 deer at night. And, you know, you can really look at bucks and go, these deer all look really healthy out here eating soybeans or whatever it is we're hunting over. Um, And then there's years where like, man, you know, we got five shed bucks out here already and they just don't look good. And, so, you know, I, I don't, I, it's hard to put a number per year on what deer make it to the next age class. 
yeah. you know, that's, that's rough. Well, I think it's tough because there's all these other factors that impact that a lot number, you know, a pile of factors. I mean, whether it's from a car, from a predator, I mean, once they get to that three or four, you know, even a two, three, four year old buck, it's not likely to get, you know, caught by a predator, but certainly can happen, especially if they're weak or sick or something else is hindering them an injury of some sort. But there's just so many things that are against these deer, uh, let alone us, you know? Well, one of the things I noticed in my particular, which is always interesting, this is totally anecdotal, but it's just a good point is a lot of times for whatever reason, Deer dispersal happens all the time, and these young button bucks tend to disperse across the landscape. A lot of times, they they even reside, even though they're in like a maternal group, they tend to reside independently. If a storm comes through, a lot of times they'll get they'll hunker down in a storm, and they'll get attacked by coyotes. Coyotes do a lot of hunting, usually during storm fronts and throughout storm fronts. And I see that time and time again, where I'll go after right after a storm, I'll find a dead a couple dead button bucks. And it's always been interesting to me, that bit of data. It seems like that happens more often. I think a lot of these areas that have a lot of these climatic issues, you know, the predation levels can be higher. You know, it depends on the snow load and locations and how the deer congregate, et cetera, you know, how the landscape is managed, et cetera. But I think there's factors that come to the equation that give predators the upper hand. Where I think some of these other areas, you know, that, that isn't the case, right? They don't have the levels of predation and impact, you know, specifically some of the coyotes, et cetera that you know knock down the deer numbers but the fawn recruitment in our areas have started to decline significantly over the past several years and people keep asking me you know why is that and that's a question for another time but you know i do see numbers starting to decline and I, I know it's relative to the habitat and the quality habitat but in your areas your recruitment numbers probably are pretty stabilized i would say is it a one-to-one ratio typically you're seeing for your you know dota fawn recruitment or is it higher um in Iowa, I'd say we're one-to-one, um, maybe a little higher. I think we do have some coyote pressure higher on Missouri stuff. Um, you know, we, we see does that don't get, that, you know, probably lost their fawns, you know, during the summertime um, when they drop. So, you know, and we, tr- we try to hunt them as much as we can. And, you know, we killed, I don't know, we probably killed 20 or 30 coyotes last year, you know, and that's, but that's across all of our farms, which is a large landscape. So it's in the scheme of things, we probably, I mean, we always, you're always helping, you know, no matter what you kill, you're always helping, but you know, in the scheme of things, are we really doing that big of a, a help? You know, probably not. Um, I don't think our coyote numbers are drastically out of hand, but I do think uh, Missouri has more coyotes than our Iowa stuff. And, I think one-to-one would be safe to say on our Iowa stuff. I think we're probably not there on Missouri. So I'm seeing in areas where they're doing habitat management around my particular area where I live, you know, anywhere between one-to-one, one one and a quarter, one and a half. And that's a pretty good number for areas where other areas where it's unmanaged habitat, I'm seeing, and this is six to eight weeks post-birth, anywhere between, you know, 0.2 to 0.4, numbers are super low. And, yeah. and, and I, I really believe, you know, the habitat's a big factor in that and designing your property to support, you know, the deer, the numbers, the escape cover, the cover in general is huge, huge for the population. I mean, it's just huge for the population. And obviously for Definitely. some of these lactating deer, I mean, the ability for them to stay healthy 
you know, maintain that lactive state where they're producing, you know, good quality milk. They're in good physical status, right? They they need to be reproductive the next year, and uh, you know, there's an opportunity for some of those does, obviously, to produce the the next year. So you're thinking about all these in the equation. On my particular property, the recruitment's in some cases anywhere between one to two. I mean, it's small scale, but if you were to blow it up. You know, relatively speaking, that's a lot higher than most areas. It's just because you're managing habitat in a way, you know. And I find out these other areas where you're hunting suburban deer, because I, I work with guys that do do a lot of hunting, like suburban areas, like, you know, small in the communities, their ratios could even be higher than that. So their populations become out of control. I mean, some of these, these deer, unless they're getting hit by cars and people are pretty cautious in those areas, their survival, you know, could be even higher than, than most areas. So it's just another yeah. factor. Definitely, man. It's crazy what suburban areas do because the coyotes are too scared to, you know, go close as close as they want and dare to the people and residents, but the deer are a little bit more um, apt to go there. Um, and they, they do quite well. So it's, it is wild to see suburban areas. So I got a couple more questions for you. The first one is we talked a little bit about deer densities and food resources and competition creates stress. I want to see. Yes. I want to see your opinion on that because that's a big, you know, this stress, aggression. You get to see how the deer interact. If you're you're talking about a large population, you know, in a small area, you know, what does that do to the deer dynamics? What have you physically seen? Does that displace deer? The deer have a tendency not to interact in certain ways. Does that displace bucks? I mean, what what have you seen in some of the farms that you're on? Um, I definitely think dispersal is a big thing. You know, if you have a a farm that's loaded with mature deer, you know, that up and coming call it two, three, four year old. Um, he, he starts getting older and all of a sudden these big guys start picking on him. He's going to go somewhere else. Um, I, I think a lot of deer naturally disperse. And then I think there's a lot of deer that get run off of farms that are forced to disperse, if you will. Social pressure is huge. And, you know, in Missouri, we've started a, a population program with the state called DMAP program. And that allows us to get more tags to lower those populations down there because, you know, two, three years ago, it was, it was way out of whack ratio wise and social pressure wise that, you know, to shoot a 140 inch, you know, this sounds, you know, across the, across the United States, this sounds kind of ignorant if you will, but to shoot 140 inch, mature Missouri whitetail, that was a big deer, which the potential and genetics is there to grow much bigger deer, but they just weren't getting there because I think they put so much time and effort into the does, the breeding, the running, and then food resources, you know, they would wipe out, you know, crop fields even. So when you look at that, now we've killed, you know, on our Missouri farms, we've killed in the last two or three years, we're well over 200 does. Um, to get those numbers, I mean, we're probably back to a three to one ratio, which isn't great, but we're back to where the deer have less social stress. Therefore they have more food to survive on through the entire year. And we've killed some much larger and upper class deer down in that area than we ever have. So, you know, that's a testament, I think, to the lowering the population lowering the social stress on the animal so that it can grow to its potential. Yeah. And I think that's part of people's management objectives that they sometimes miss out on. And this is kind of next level stuff with you guys, but 
you know, when you're managing for kind of the trophy animals, in those instances, you know, their mating behavior, the social structure, the way they communicate, their territorial stance and behavior, those are all factors. And you can see this play out in the field, you know, what deer do when, and they Big adapt. Time. I mean, they, they adapt and, you know, they, they evolve, but, you know, when they, when they have these, these hierarchy systems and there is a hierarchy system, you know, to some of these mating deer, it's just, it's awareness on the landscape and it's, it's trying not to have an overabundance. So you brought up a number and this is my, my next point I wanted to get to the one to three ratio. And that's not a bad number at all. I know that's probably not an objective you'd, you say is like you're boasting about, but that's a pretty good number. And it's a, a number that I like, I think a lot of areas are having a hard time achieving particular areas that I work in, in Pennsylvania and New York. What really set that number, and why do you think that's a good number in your mind? What, what what seems to work out well in the landscape with numbers like that? Um, you just you get to where you know for our farms at least the deer, you know, there's enough food left for the deer all to survive well and not crowd each other out, not have to fight, you know, just to feed in the winter time, um, and that's just kind of where honestly, from where we were, call it a, I'd have to go back and look at my log sheets, but we were six to one, five to one type of ratio. And we started shooting these does and being able to get tags and, you know, really work on the population numbers. And we've gotten to a three to one and, you know, just seeing it year to year develop. And then we've sat and watched the deer herd while we're hunting down there and gone, you know, we're, this is where we need to be. This is where, everything looks healthy. This is where our food plots are doing growing and then being able to be utilized by the deer. You know, I think that's a big thing just because you grow a food plot that somebody sees and like, Oh, my food plot looks amazing. But in three, four weeks of hunting, Oh, it's gone. Well, that, you know, that didn't get the deer to where we are right now, you know, February, March to be able to live. Um, so I, you know, to say there's a dynamic that we, I think it's just our logs and being able to watch the deer progress. And then we got to this ratio and, you know, we talked about how many does to shoot this year down there in that country. And we shot a few, but it wasn't very many. Um, and we kind of all agreed on, man, our deer are looking healthy. They're growing to potential. They're the bucks are, you know, on each farms. They're not running each other across the landscape, you know? So it, it all just seems to be working right now. Yeah, I think the only thing I want to add to that is, and I think of Pennsylvania and portions of Western New York just out my way, sorry to be so location specific, but this is what I'm familiar with, is, you know, these increased deer populations that we've seen, you know, high density of deer, they've caused so much damage to the plants and, the you know, the relative opportunities for, you know, insects and, and resultant bird species. You hear all about the, all the birds are dying. Well, the birds are dying, not not necessarily because of the herbicides everyone's spraying and pesticides. It has a lot to do with insect availability in the landscape, which directly correlates the number of plants and I want to say native plants are in the landscape supporting <coughs> those particular insects, which, you know, it's kind of full circle when you think about this whole scheme of, you know, how we're developing ecological systems and, everything's kind of propagating itself and deer are keystone species. And what that really means is when they start depleting everything, everything below them starts to deplete even more. So that comes yeah. in this cyclic state and it is not helpful. At least it's not helpful for us as hunters because we want healthy, good quality meat and food. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the most important thing really, you know, 
Perry, those are the main questions I had for you today. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? Some anything going on in your world? Uh, no, I was gonna <clears throat> I was gonna add one thing when we were talking about social stress. Okay. Um, and and I haven't got to see this over the years, but my boss Mark Drury has who I work for. And he's killed multiple two hundred inch deer, and he's killed them after the years of EHD, meaning EHD came in, wiped the herd, not out but wiped out, you know, call it 50%, 60% of the herd. The bucks that lived during those EHD years, two or three years after that EHD year occurred and a deer and a buck made it, say he was two and a half, three and a half, and then he killed him at six and a half. Those were the years he killed his 200s. So, you know, to, to watch Mother Nature take its toll, you know, to take hold of the deer population and say, no, we have too many, we're, you know, we're taking a hold of this and then to see the big deer get killed the two or three years later, you know, that really shows you how much reducing your numbers and lessening the social stress out there on the landscape does for just the, the bucks. And I think the does in general, everybody just lives a little bit happier. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's a good example and it's interesting. Those are interesting bits of data. And it's funny when I started this podcast, I always said, you know, I, I was, talking about many different things initially and i said i want low deer numbers and everyone looks at me like what are you talking about like i'm not aggressive in the deer numbers because i'm trying to build a quality habitat which attracts in my area i know i can't produce world-class deer but i can produce good deer and i can attract good deer and one of my goals is to provide the habitat that attracts those good quality deer and really if that's one of your factors that'll weigh in significantly on your properties you know we always think like you know, I've got to reach that next level. Well, next level doesn't necessarily always have to surround trigger control, particularly when those populations are in check. It could be more along the lines of your building habitat, and quality habitat attracts quality animals. And that was a point yep. I was trying to make earlier, and I've made that point several times throughout this podcast. All right, man. Well, Definitely. It was, uh, it was good catching up with you. I don't want to keep you too long tonight. I know we're both busy. I'm happy those broadheads worked out for you, and hopefully that company, they start releasing those, whatever they are. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I can't say much about them, but we'll see what happens. All right. Sounds good, man. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for taking the time tonight. Yeah, appreciate it. All right. See ya. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.